Amen. If you have your Bible, let's turn in that Bible to Romans chapter 11 today. The passage that we're looking at is Romans 11, verses 25 through 32. And if you don't have a Bible, then please pick up one of those black Bibles that's on the end of the pew. And in that Bible, I believe it's on page 947. But uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. Let's read that together as we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in Romans. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. We have this uh, children's book that I've read to Jade and Patrick a few times recently that's sitting in our house called Stanley's Fire Engine. And at one point, this uh, this little character, Stanley, I think he's a hamster, but he's got a fire engine. And at one point, he takes his fire engine around the neighborhood, and uh, he's, he's just put out a fire in a barbecue grill, and then he comes across these kids who have a little kiddie pool sitting out. And you know what Stanley does just for fun, to make it really, really fun for these kids, is he sprays them with his fire hose. Now, the way that it's presented in the book, it's, it's just kind of like this fun thing, like, oh, there's a little water getting on you. But as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, if, 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 if my kids were out playing in a little kiddie pool, and then a, a fire truck came along and sprayed them with a fire hose, I don't think I'd be too happy about that. Uh, but... Uh, that's just kind of what I thought of as we come to this passage, because when you open up your Bible, uh, sometimes you kind of feel like, well, I'm, I'm just going to get like a little kiddie pool's worth today. And then sometimes as you go into the Bible, it, 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 you, you can find that just what's next for you in the scriptures is not quite a kiddie pool. It's more like a fire hose. And that's what we have today. So we have this commitment at this church that we preach through books of the Bible and we, we're going to you know, see everything that's laid out in front of us uh, in the order that God has given it to us in the scriptures. And I just want to tell you today, if you came to church thinking well, we're going to open up the Bible and it's, it's just going to be kind of like a little, a little uh, nice thing, um, well, I hope you'll be encouraged, but I also just want to warn you, just God has opened a fire hose on us today, and so just, just kind of brace yourself. Uh, that's what he's given us. So as we come to this, it, it, we're, we're covering sort of a big chunk of Scripture uh, compared to what we cover sometimes in the book of Romans. And part of the reason for that is that uh, a lot of the concepts that we're talking about here are concepts that in one way or another have already been covered in this chapter, in Romans chapter 11. And so if you've been around over the last several weeks as we've been going through this chapter, then uh, a lot of the things will be sort of repetition, but, uh, but that allows us to kind of put together this bigger chunk and see where we are. Just to, to remind you where we are, God has, has brought up this concept in the question, the big question of why is it that so few of the Jewish people have embraced the Jewish Messiah whose name is Jesus? Why is it that so many of the people who are coming into the kingdom by faith in the Jewish Messiah are not Jewish people but Gentile people? Why is the church being made of so many Gentiles and so few Jews? And that's been the question from Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and now Romans chapter 11. And where we've come to here at at this point is God speaking of sort of his greater plans. He's, he's already told us things starting in chapter 9 about the fact that not all are Israel who are descended from Abraham, that it has to do with, with God's election, as it says in, in Romans 9, as it says even in the beginning of Romans 11, that God has an elect remnant within Israel and that he's elected people to save from all nations. 
And so, so that's told us that this rejection of Christ by the Jewish people is not complete. That even in Paul's day, Paul was an example of someone who, by God's grace, had come to faith in Christ as king, as Lord, as Savior. And that throughout all ages, there are those of the Jewish people who are coming to faith in Christ as the elect remnant. But in Romans 11, it seems that we're given this hope that there is a coming day in Christ's kingdom, in this plan that God has to bring people to himself, a coming day when he has determined that he's going to bring in an awful lot more of the Jewish people back into faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of what is covered here, but it was pictured for us in the verses before this as as an olive tree, that that God has his people. That's just one people. It's not two peoples. It's not that he has one flock over here and then another flock over here, and he's going to deal with them separately. Jesus says, I have others that I will bring in, and they will be one flock with one shepherd. That's what he said back in the book of John. And the way that he puts it here is that it's one tree, one olive tree, and that there are those who were branches who were cut off because of their unbelief in Christ, those who were among the external people of God that was called Israel or the Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus, and they have been for a time cut off or permanently cut off if they will never believe in the Lord Jesus. And there are those of us who, like me, are Gentiles that God has brought in from the outside. And he said that we were like these scraggly, wild branches bearing no fruit, but he's taken us and he's grafted us into that olive tree, and he's made us one people together. And so that's kind of what he's talked about, but he's given us these indications already that God has a plan to bring in the future a great, great number of the Jewish people back in to that olive tree, to graft them back in. And that's kind of where we pick up. And as we pick up in that place, we're going to see today that there are more elect from Israel, more elect individuals from the Jewish people, that God has a plan to bring them in, but only as redeemed sinners, only as redeemed sinners saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, Let's look at verse 25 as we pick up and see God's mysterious, humbling plans for what he's going to do. God's mysterious, humbling plans. He says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that, okay? He says, here's why I'm telling you this. So you don't think that you're very smart. So you don't get arrogant, about what you think you know, but we'll come back. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. You see the double negative, I do not want you to be unaware. He's kind of saying, you don't know, and you don't know what you don't know, but I'm going to tell you something here. And what is it? It's a mystery. Now, when the Bible When the New Testament especially uses the word mystery, what's it talking about? It's not talking about a mystery novel. It's not talking about a, an unsolved mystery that you go and you gather the clues and you figure out. The way that the Bible uses the word mystery is that it's something that was hidden in times past, but now has been revealed. And so this, this mystery is something that people didn't know, that was unknown at previous times throughout the Old Testament, and now that Christ has risen from the dead through the apostles through the revelation that Jesus had given them, there was this mystery, this thing that wasn't known but now is known. And what is it? Here's the mystery. Here's the thing that's now known, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's think about this a little bit, okay? This is a mystery. He's already told us up front. I'm telling you this so you won't be wise in your own sight. So if it's hard to grasp, if it's a fire hose, yes. It seems to be that that's how God intends it right here. But let's think about it. A hardening, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
What's he talking about? He's saying that among the children, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are called here Israel, or who you might call the Jewish people, he says a partial hardening has come. Or you could translate that as a hardening upon part of them. Either way is kind of a wash, kind of the same thing. But what is that hardening talking about? Ephesians 4.18 talks about this. It says that those who don't trust in Christ are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So there's a hardness of heart that is preventing them from turning to trust in Jesus. Ezekiel talks about how that God is able to take away the heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born again. But what this says is that for a time, there is a hardening that has come upon Israel, remaining in that hardness of heart. It said back in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That God is the one who is sovereign over all these things. As we talked about when we were there, that doesn't mean that God is to blame for anyone's unbelief, for anyone's sin, or for anything else that is evil. God is never to blame, and yet God is sovereign over all of it. He hardens whomever he wills, and he has mercy on whomever he wills. He said back in the beginning verses of Romans 11, verses 7 and 8, he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Elect means those that God chose. But he says the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So he's saying, yes, look, there is a hardness of heart, a spirit of stupor, a hardening that in God's sovereign plan has come upon most of those who are among the people of Israel, most of the Jewish people, but he says, until. Until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a whole lot of people who have a whole lot of stuff that they read into that phrase. And a lot of the way that various people, various Christians will understand that phrase until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it just has to do with, with assumptions that they would have, the ways that they would put together various other parts of the Scriptures. It has to do with whether or not you prioritize the Old Testament in interpretation over the New Testament or whether you see the New Testament as giving the fuller and deeper and more revealed meaning of the Old Testament Scriptures. It has to do with all kinds of things. But I do just want to say right here that it doesn't seem to indicate anything here about talking about the rapturing of Gentile believers to get them out of the way so that God could then continue a plan to save Jews that was so rudely interrupted by the cross and the resurrection and the establishment of the church. Now, I have to mention that here because that is one of the most common ways that this passage is read that the fullness of the Gentiles would mean that God has a time when he's going to be finished gathering in all of the elect among the Gentiles, and at that point that God would then rapture away the church, and that at that point, after, that, after they are out of the way, the fullness of the Gentiles dealt with, done, out of the way, then would come the, uh, the tribulation, and then seven years later, the second coming of Christ, and that through those events that God would then turn back to the original plan that he had of building this physical kingdom of Israel on earth, maybe reestablishing the temple, maybe even reestablishing the sacrifices, which are things that I just don't really understand how you can take the book of Hebrews seriously and, and say. But all that just to say that... that a lot of this has to do, a lot of the understanding of what does it mean that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, a lot of it has to do with how we would understand a passage in First Thessalonians. So we're going to turn there real quick, okay? So put your finger in Romans, and then you're going to turn a few pages to the right to First Thessalonians, and I want to read you First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. 
Here's what it says. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And by fallen asleep there, he means believers who have died. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, argue with one another about these words. Wait, is that what it says? (laughs) Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right? Encourage one another with these words. Okay. I just have to say, the understanding of that passage to mean that there would be a pre-tribulational rapture. The understanding of that passage to mean that before Jesus came back, and usually it's, it's listed out as seven years before Jesus comes back, that there's going to be a time when all of the believing Christians in the world disappear and are caught up together into the clouds to go and to, to be in heaven with Jesus while God then deals with the earth in a different way with with this time of tribulation, that teaching was not seen in these verses for the first 1,800 years of the church. And so often when, when Christians read these verses, that's exactly what they hear because they've heard it so often, but you just need to know that 1,800 years of our brothers and sisters in Christ were reading this passage without seeing that there. And I, I, I just want to take you through it just for a second. I know we're in Romans 11, but I'm going to exposit 1 Thessalonians 4 just a little bit for us, okay? Because the the idea that that would be a a disappearance of the whole church in a secret way, for one thing, it means that Jesus comes back halfway, not all the way, that that coming back is secret. It's not something that's publicly known. It would mean that Jesus is taking those people away rather than coming and returning at that point. But I just don't think that's what that passage says. He, what he says is the Lord, this is verse 16 in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Does he say secretly? He says with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That's loud. That's public. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Praise God. Praise God. And then he says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Praise God. That word caught up together or caught up, that's where we get the term rapture because in the the Vulgate, the Latin translation, that's kind of what that word sounds like, rapture, caught up together. So we can all affirm, yes, there is a rapture taught in Scripture. It says we will be caught up together with him in the clouds. But the question is, is that to be taken away? Well, no, it doesn't say that. It says to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What does that word meet mean? Well, there's two other places in Scripture where it's used. One is Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, where it says, But at the midnight cry, or excuse me, at, at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And what happens? This is the parable of the virgins where there's, there are those who were wise and who were ready for the coming of the bridegroom, and there's who, those who were foolish and who were not ready. But it doesn't say that those who were ready go out and meet him and leave. It says in Matthew 25.10 that that meeting him, what it means to come out and meet him, is that the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Or the other time that that same word is used is Acts, 25, or Acts 28 verse, 4, or verse 15. This is in Paul's missionary travels as he's, uh, as he's being brought to Rome in chains toward the end of the book of Acts. It says, and so we came to Rome And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. Now that meeting them, it says that they came out from Rome to meet him, but it doesn't say that they stayed gone from Rome. It says they were going out to greet him and bring him in. 
This is the same kind of thing that happens when the grandparents show up from out of state and their SUV rolls into the driveway and the kids run out and start jumping around and hugging them in the front yard, but then they, they don't never come home after that. You're going out to meet them and that seems to be exactly what is being spoken of here just even in terms of the word meet that's being used there in 1 Thessalonians, that we will meet him in the air. It seems to be saying that we who are alive when Christ returns are not going to be taken away so that God could then have a different plan without us after that. It's that we're, we're receiving him back to earth, that he is, is coming, and we will get to come with him, even, even if we're here. We get to go up there, meet him in the air, and come back with him. I, I can't wait for that to happen. I can't wait for that to happen. Now, are you allowed to be a church member if you think that there is a pre-tribulational rapture where you will be uh, brought away and, and never return, uh, or excuse me, return seven years later? If, if you have that dispensational view of things, are we going to kick you out of the church? No. <laughs> Not only will we not kick you out of the church, we'll probably, you know, if, if you're strong in the scriptures and in your, your life, we may have you teach Sunday school. We may have you do stuff like that. We may rejoice and celebrate together. We, we may find out that we're both wrong about how these things play out in the end. And we have to have a certain humility about the fact that when we're talking about things that are somewhat obscure in the scriptures, things that are in the future, things that are given to us not in very clear language, that we have to have a humility, hey, things could play out differently. Just like things played out differently with the first coming of Jesus than everyone expected. They may play out differently with the second coming of Jesus than everyone expected. But why did I take you there? Why did we do that? It's just to say that when those who come to Romans 11, when they read this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles and just automatically assume, well, that must therefore mean the pre-tribulational rapture so that God can then deal with the Jewish people separately from the previous church who was around. Well, it just doesn't say that. There's an awful lot of assumptions that have to come in. So what does it mean with the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, I guess we don't exactly know, but probably it means God has a plan to save a lot of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And God is going to carry out that plan through what's called the Great Commission, where he told his disciples, where he tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he says, look, the end of the age is coming, but before that, go and make disciples of all nations. And it seems that we're going to do that. Well, let's be part of that plan of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, spreading the gospel across the whole earth. But then he also says, until all, or excuse me, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now again, this is one of those things. What, is, what does the fullness of the Gentiles mean? People have a lot of opinions. What does all Israel will be saved mean? People have a lot of opinions. I told you some of these when we were back uh, earlier in, in this chapter at verse 12. I'm going to tell them to you again. All right, the, the ways that people interpret this idea of the fullness of Israel, all Israel being saved. Well, some people think that that means that God will give eternal life to every individual Jewish person of all time. Now, why do they think that? Well, it's, I guess it's just one way that you could read the grammar here but it just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the book of Romans or the rest of the Bible. The idea that every single person, because of the ethnicity and the family that they were born into, will go to heaven. No, it's, it's by faith alone in Christ alone that God saves people. And it's the case for Jews and Gentiles both. So we can kind of count that one out. There is the other view that, that God's going to take away the church and then deal with the Jews in a separate way, and, and so I kind of mentioned that a little bit. There's another extreme that says, well, this doesn't have anything at all to do with ethnic Israel, that this is only talking about the idea that God is going to save people 
and that he's going to bring them into that vine of Christ, that he's going to bring them into that olive tree, that he's going to bring them into that one flock, that maybe this doesn't really even have anything to do with ethnic Israel at all. Well, I just don't think you can read the rest of what it says here that way. He seems to be answering the whole question, what's God doing with ethnic Israel? There's, there is the, the opinion that God is going to save a small remnant of elect Jews from all time, but this seems to be talking about something bigger that's coming in the future. There's the opinion that he's talking about the majority of Jews from all time. There's the opinion that he's talking about uh, a majority of the people who are alive at the coming time in the future that's close to the return of Christ or, or large uh, numbers of Jews at various times throughout church history. Here, here, here's what I, I think is being spoken of. I, I think that what he's saying is that at some time in the future, sometime near the second coming of Christ, that there is going to be a great revival among the Jewish people, that there is going to be a great, great number of people who are ethnically Jewish who are coming to faith in the Jewish Savior whose name is Jesus and joining our churches and being brought in, not by some different plan than God had for everybody else, but by the same plan, by the same Savior, by the same grace, by the same faith alone in Christ alone, and joining the same churches so that we have to figure out a lot of the same lessons that the church at Rome had to figure out. How do we live as a church that has such an incredible amount of Gentile heritage and Jewish heritage together? And what a beautiful thing that will be to see. And we look forward to that time when it says the deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. That's Jesus coming from Zion to banish ungodliness from Jacob. And he says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You know what? That's a better covenant than the one that says, receive circumcision and keep the Mosaic law. He says, no, I'm going to come and take away their sins. That's the new covenant that's being spoken of in Jeremiah 31. That is the new covenant in my blood, as Jesus says. And it seems to be saying here, many, many Jewish people will come to faith in Jesus. Praise God for that. That seems to be prophesied in places like Zechariah 12.10, where it speaks about those who pierced Christ, those who killed Christ. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. We long for that day when there will be a fountain open, Zechariah 13, 1, for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I just want to clarify, the way that the Bible says that this is going to happen is it's kind of listed out back earlier in the chapter. How is it going to happen? Well, he says, I mag- this is verse 13 of, of Romans 11, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump, and the root is holy, so are the branches. What he's getting at here is the idea that even in his ministry to the Gentiles, he is, is magnifying that and showing God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is bringing people in, reconciling people to himself from all nations. And he says, I want to magnify my ministry of evangelism to all nations, and I want to bring that same ministry to the Jewish people as well. There there is no indication here that God plans to save the Jewish people by the keeping of the law. There's no indication here that God plans to save the Jewish people by a reestablishment of the throne of David in Jerusalem. There's no indication here that God plans to save the Jewish people by a rebuilding of a physical temple. The book of Hebrews seems to totally rule that out. Or by some sort of a, a, a uh, geopolitical action that would take place in the Middle East. No, it, it seems to be through the preaching of the gospel. 
preaching of the gospel. And so we pray for that. We look forward to that. A couple of, of things to think about here. Why, why is God teaching us this? I told you we'd come back to verse 25, the beginning of it. Lest you be wise in your own sight. You hear that? Lest you be wise in your own sight. One of the things that that tells me is that when we think, when, when we start to get in a position where we, we just say, hey, I've got this figured out. Anybody who says that potential alternative explanations of this teaching are ridiculous, because obviously it's the one that I know, well, that's not why God says that he told us this. He says that he told us this so that you would not be arrogant, so that you would not be wise in your own sight, so that we would, even as as we are allowed to come to a, a firm conviction about what this plan is being taught to us as in Scripture. You're allowed to have those convictions and those, those positions. When those convictions and positions start to spill over into the idea of anybody who thinks that this is wrong is just absolutely blind to their Bibles, well, that's, no, that's being wise in your own sight. That's, that's that arrogance that it's being told to us here that we ought not to have. Another thing that this means, lest you be wise in your own sight, is that we, we ought not to be arrogant toward the Jewish people. This was the context of what was coming up in, in Romans 11, is the idea that there, there could be a temptation among Gentile believers to say, boy, isn't it great that the Jewish people abandoned Christ so that God would bring us in? And boy, how foolish of them. And to just have all kinds of of arrogance. And he says, no, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be wise in your own sight. We also ought not to be arrogant toward any unbeliever. Because even as it's talking about the plan for the Jews, it's also talking about the plan for the Gentiles. God has a plan to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. And if we start to think to ourselves toward anybody of any background, wow, wow. I can't believe they are so lost. Look at me so saved. I can't believe they are so lost. I'm awesome. No. Did you know that as God brings in the fullness of his elect, it could very well be the unbeliever that you in your heart harbored arrogance toward, that God would make your brother or your sister in Christ God may even raise that person up to be the pastor of your church one day. God may give them a better seat than you around the banqueting table of Christ. And so how dare us ever consider in our hearts to be arrogant toward those that haven't yet come into the kingdom of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. We have to be humble when we consider the incomprehensible wisdom of God's plan because that is the mystery that's been revealed and it's beautiful and it's hard for us to sort through and it's a fire hose, but it just reminds me of what we said last week in Psalm 131.1. Remember this? O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Just a reminder that we are low, God is high up, And the way that we're about to come to the end of this fire hose passage when we get there next week, next Sunday, will be, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's telling us things that are hard to understand on purpose so that we would turn and be humble and glorify God. The next thing he says in verses 28 and 29 is this teaching about God's beloved enemies. It says in verse 28, he's turning back and he's speaking about God's plans for the Jewish people. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Somebody who is an enemy of God in one sense, but beloved by God in another sense. You know what that is? All of us before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
We were, as it says in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were lost in our sins, but God had set his love upon us from before the foundation of the world. Amazing, isn't it? That idea of being a beloved enemy of God is something that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5.44, where he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray, those, pray for those who persecute you. Why does it say to love your enemies? Jesus said, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We absolutely do believe, because it's taught very clearly in Scripture, like in Romans 9, that God has his elect from before the foundation of the world, who he loves eternally, and God has the reprobate, who he has determined in his infinite wisdom to condemn forever and ever. But if we think to ourselves that because that doctrine is true, that therefore God does not have any love for those who will not turn to Christ, we're missing what Jesus says there. He says, here's why you love your enemies, because you want to be like God, and God loves his enemies. It says, here's how that looks. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Does he love all people in the same way? No. But does he love all his enemies? Yes. Yes, he does. But he also has, as I said, this special, electing, saving love. He says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You know what it says to you, believer in Jesus Christ? It says you were once an enemy of God because you had turned against God in your sin. By nature, you were sinful and you acted it out and you lived in that rebellious sin toward God, blind to what it meant, but God loved you anyway. God sent his son to die for you anyway and to redeem you and to bring you in. So the idea of being a beloved enemy is not foreign to the Bible at all. There are a lot of people right now, right now, who are walking as enemies of the cross, who have that saving love still set on them from before the foundation of the world, who will one day be born again, who will repent, who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to be changed from being children of wrath into being children of the living God. It's beautiful to see that. Some of you sitting in this room right now who are committed, serving members of the church, in your own testimonies, you tell about when it is that God saved you, and sometimes I, I hear those dates. You know, so somebody will say, well, you know what? I, I, I first came to believe the gospel in 2018. It, it, isn't that an amazing thing that there are people sitting in this room right now who are just walking in, in love with Christ, who in 2018 were walking as enemies of the cross, you know, I, I, 2018 is not that long ago. Or somebody says 2014 or even 2006, and I, I start thinking back, what was going on in my life? And, and where was my brother in Christ then? And what kind of lostness was he in? And if I met him at that time, would I have even had the courage to tell him the gospel? W would I have even thought to myself that I have anything at all? that I could use to start a conversation with this ungodly, God-hating person? And yet, here you are. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thing? You were enemies, but you were also beloved. And so what it says here in this, this verse is, is that God has, has those, specifically within the Jewish people, who have not just continued 
the general idea that, that, that the Jewish people are those that God made these covenants and these promises with, but also that God has elected them to salvation and they just haven't been saved yet. That's what you've got here. He, he's saying that they are elect for the sake of their forefathers. What that's getting at is that there was that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob about the salvation that would be brought to their children. And God hasn't forgotten about that. He's not going to bring it about by way of law-keeping. He's going to bring it about by way of many, many of them being shown to be among his elect by being born again to believe in Jesus as Savior. That seems to be what it's saying, and that's why it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, what is that gifts and calling of God? Well, for individuals, we can be assured by that verse. If you're an individual believer in Christ, you can be assured that the gifts and the calling of God aren't going to be taken away from you. If God has saved you, it is impossible for you to be unsaved. If you have professed faith in Christ, it's possible you were never a believer at all. But if God has actually saved you, if he has actually caused you to be born again, he's not going to cause you to be unborn again. This gifts and calling of God, it just reminds me of what it says in Romans chapter 8, where he says, those whom, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no such thing as somebody who has been effectually called, brought to faith in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's not going to be in heaven. There's just no such thing. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But more what it's talking about here, even though that's a principle we can apply from 1129, more what it's talking about here is what's going on with the Jewish people, with the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of those promises, all of those things that God said to Abraham that he would do for his children, he is going to keep his promises. And the way he's going to keep his promises is by bringing them to the one that all the promises were pointing to, who is Jesus. Bringing many, many of them to faith in Jesus Christ. The gifts and the calling that he's talking about are listed in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. It says that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And this is just saying, God didn't forget about that. He didn't forget. Charles Hodge, who was a great Princeton theologian back in the 1800s, he has four applications that I think are great for us to take from this teaching about what God is still intending to do with the Jewish people. Here's one that we ought to have a deep sense of our obligation to the Jews, he says, because there, there are people that God used to preserve his word and his worship all the way from Abraham to Christ, and that they uh, are the, the people that God used to send us our Savior, Jesus. And so we ought to, in our hearts, have a deep sense we are obligated to those people because of what God has done through that people. The second thing that he points out that we should have is a sincere compassion for the Jewish people. A compassion about their lost state, uh, of all of those who don't believe, although, praise God, there are, are many who do, but most don't, and to have a compassion about their lostness. And, and we, should, uh, we should be thinking about what God would do and, and to, to think about how it is that we could share the gospel with them. We, the third thing that he says is that this should bring about a banishment of all feelings of contempt toward the Jewish people or exultation over them. If that in any way has crept into your heart, get rid of it. You shouldn't feel that toward any people, let alone the children of Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. All right? And then finally he says that this should cultivate in us an earnest desire and prayer and efforts for their salvation. We ought to want to see them saved. We ought to pray for their salvation. We ought to share the gospel. Just want to remind you, too, we do have a special tract back in the back called How to Recognize the Messiah. 
that's specifically for you to give away to your Jewish friends and neighbors or family members uh, that may help in that effort. Now, the way that this closes out is verses 30 to 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. He already said this is part of God's plan. He said this is part of what God has in mind in his plans of why it is that so few of the Jewish people have trusted in Jesus is because that was an opening through which he has brought in a multitude of people from all nations. But he says, just as that was the case, then he says, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Do you know who God saves? Sinners. God only saves sinners. Did you know that? God, Jesus only died for disobedient people. He didn't die for obedient people. There are no such thing other than him, but part of that is that those who know that they are sinners are in a pretty good position to be able to be saved from their sins. Those who think that they need no Savior are not going to go to the Savior. Those who think that they need no doctor are not going to go to the doctor even if they're dying. That's what Jesus says in Luke 5, where he says that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, just as you had to come to a point where you knew you were a disobedient rebel, wandering far from God, and then God could bring you back in, you could receive the grace of Jesus. Just as that's the case, he's going to do that with others too. Robert Haldane, in, in commenting on this, he said, had the Jews all received the gospel at first, both they and the world at large would have been inclined to believe that they did not need the same conversion or the same grace as the Gentiles. This is just part of the mysterious, beautiful plan of God. But he's saying part of the plan out of all of this is for everybody to know that you must be born again. Nobody is born okay. Nobody is born into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody is just by nature of their family heritage brought in to be part of God's kingdom. You must believe. You must be born again. You know, maybe, maybe if, if there had been just this immediate acceptance among the Jewish people, then they would have had this feeling like, boy, we, you can just be saved just by being Jewish, just by being part of this people. And what's silly is that there's some Christians who, even though we wouldn't say it, some Christians act practically like you must be born again if you were like really bad to start with, or if you were born into an unbelieving family, but for us who, who are brought up in the church, well, it's, it's just fine. You've grown up in the church. You, you know, we, we figure you probably get it. It's all right. Let's not have that attitude. Let, let's recognize that even for our own children, even for you kids who are here in church from a young age, you don't remember a time when you didn't go to church. Praise God for that. And you need to know that God tends to save kids in that position. He tends to honor that. He says, bring up a child in the way that he will go, and even when he was old, he will not depart from it. it. It is normal and to be expected, but it doesn't just automatically happen. Even those who were born into these Christian, Baptist, Reformed, beautiful, Bible-teaching, homeschooling, whatever down the list families that you may want to say, guys, you must be born again or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to come to a place just as the Jewish people, just as the Gentiles, just as everybody must recognize, have to know I was consigned to disobedience so that God could then have mercy on me, a sinner. God only saves sinners. What a beautiful thing it is to see this mysterious plan of God, both for Gentiles and for Jews, and guys, I just want to say, I, I hope that this fire hose hasn't blown you out of the water too much. 
next week is actually a deeper thing than we have this week, but maybe a little less of a fire hose. We'll see. I don't know, but this is exactly what God gave to us. And I hope that we can do two things. I I hope that we can, at the same time, say, I want to search out the mysteries of God. I want to get it. If God has spoken of it in the scriptures, I want to learn it. I want to get it. It it, it says in Proverbs, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. I want to search these things out. But at the same time, I hope that you'll also have that humble attitude that is speaking of, lest you be wise in your own sight, to know this is something that is greater than my comprehension until I finally see it happen. Even as I want to search it out, I want to also have a humble trust that God is going to work it out, and I'm going to rejoice when I see it. Rejoice when I see it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the word that you've given us. Um, Lord, Peter even said that there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And this is one of them. And it's something that you gave by your Holy Spirit through Paul's pen. And Lord, it is a revealed thing that's for us and for our children forever, but it also speaks of secret things that belong only to you. So I pray that you would help us to understand, and I pray that you would give give us humility, and I pray that you would lead us in the way that's right. But God, we thank you for the beauty of what's here. We thank you for the, the gifts and the calling of God that are irrevocable. God, we thank you for the plans that you have to save sinners from both the Jewish nations of all the world and from among or excuse me, the Gentile nations of all the world and also from the Jewish people as well. God, I pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a humility, a love for the lost, and a a boldness in speaking of the one and only Savior whose name is Jesus. God, we pray that you would bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. We pray that you would bring in the fullness of Israel as well. That's all in your plans. And so we pray that you would save sinners. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who, uh, who is right now still in that position of being consigned to disobedience, being a child of wrath, being lost in their sins, I pray that you would open their eyes to their state. I pray that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Christ who came and died for sinners like us. And I pray that you'd bring them to faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us as, as believers to walk in love and, and to walk in seeking the salvation of those who are lost. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.